So if you have your Bibles with you or a a phone app, then go ahead and turn to the book of Jonah. As you're doing that, I'd like to ask you a question. Way back when, when I was studying law, they always told me that never ask a question unless you already know the answer. However, I'm going to risk it. So I'm sure all of us know the word association game. I would say something, you would say something that you think of immediately. So if I was to say cat, you might say dog. If I was to say bat, you might say ball. So what's the first thing you think of when I say Jonah? Well, there you go. Thankfully, I did know the answer. That our culture is a culture that's growing less and less and less to know the Bible. We don't really know Bible stories as well, typically. And yet the story about Jonah and the whale is probably one of the most well-known stories. And most people, if you say to them Jonah, they will probably respond, whale, right? There have been papers written on this. There have been much disputing about this book. I googled during the week uh, just the phrase, can a man survive inside a fish? And I got 3.75 million results. It's just crazy, crazy. And all of this interest and attention, despite the fact that of the 48 verses in the book of Jonah, the big fish is mentioned in just three of them, right? But the the book of uh, Jonah is not about a whale. It's not even predominantly about Jonah. It's about God, and it's about the loving and gracious heart of God towards any and all people. It's about a God who loves people to the extent that he wants as many as possible to repent and come be with him in relationship. In short, it's a, it's a book that's about the grace of God. It's a God who's full of grace. And that's why we've called this series Running Into Grace. We're not exactly sure when the book was written, there's some debate, but at a minimum, right? It was 2,200 years ago. Now, we are so far divorced from the culture, from the language, from the setting. There are certain things that as we read the book, we don't notice as much as the original reader would have noticed. The book of Jonah is full of humor, or at least the 8th century BC Jewish version of humor. It's full of uh, contradictions. It's full of comparisons. And it's most of all a book of the unexpected. It's full of unexpected things. Now, if you've grown up in a Christian home or grown up uh, in the church, you've been so assailed with the story of Jonah and the whale. You've been hearing about this time and time again since, uh, since the CD was cutting-edge technology, right? So you've been hearing all about this, and which dulled us to the surprise and some of the shock that's in the book. So today we're going to look at the first chapter of Jonah, and we're going to try and look at it afresh and be surprised again and recognize that this is a book of the unexpected. So Jonah, chapter 1, says... Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. 
Then they said to him, tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation and what do you, where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you of? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, well, what should we do to you that the sea can quieten down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quieten down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, saying, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, as we walk through this story of Jonah, I want to look at it in three kind of parts, and I want to reflect the fact that this is a book of the unexpected, and what would the original reader have heard of this. So the three parts I want to look at are, you know, God wants Jonah to do what? And then Jonah responds, and we say, Jonah does what? And then God comes and responds, and we say, God does what? So those are the three sections I want to look at this morning. So God asked Jonah... In verses 1 and 2, it said, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So who was Jonah? This isn't the first time we've heard about Jonah in the Bible. In the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14, 25, it's talking about a king called Jeroboam. And it says, He, Jeroboam, restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-hepher. Now this verse is talking about this king, uh, Jeroboam, and he ruled over Israel in around about the middle of the 8th century BC. Now it describes him as an, as an evil king because he caused the, the God's people to worship idols and things other than God. But despite this, God sees their suffering and he says he's going to help them. And one of the ways is he uses Jeroboam to enlarge the borders of Israel. This isn't a reflection of the greatness of Jeroboam. It's more a reflection of the greatness and love of God. Now, he, he tells the people that he's going to do this. God tells them, I'm going to do this for you by telling them ahead of time that he's going to do it, and then he does it. And he uses Jonah to do it. So he gives a word to Jonah, and then Jonah goes and speaks probably to the king and says, God's going to do this. And then sure enough, he does. Now, that's what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who hears from God and passes on that message to other people. And the Bible tells us that the measure of a true prophet is one who says something and then it happens. And so here we're seeing a story of God has come and he's chosen Jonah. He's spoken to Jonah. Jonah's gone and spoken to the king. He said something and it's happened. So the Bible's very clear. Jonah is a true prophet. And not only just a prophet, he's he's quite significant, right? He's going to talk to the king. Imagine now if you were a spiritual advisor to the president. You'd be a pretty big deal in Christian circles, right? And this this is the equivalent for Jonah. We're also told that Jonah's from Gath-hepher, which is around about two miles northeast of Nazareth. And Jonah, uh, sorry, God gives Jonah this task to cry out against Nineveh. So who is Nineveh? Nineveh is a city, or it was a city rather, uh, that was part of the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrian Empire was a big deal in the time. They were pretty big, pretty powerful. Nineveh later became uh, the capital city 
until it fell to the Babylonians in 612 BC. And they had a real reputation for being quite cruel and dominant in the area. War for the Assyrians was kind of a yearly thing. Um, I guess like some of us take vacation every summer, they took war every summer. And they would go away and springtime would come and they would come and they would make war. And they would do three things. I mean, they would have uh, kind of like open warfare and they would also have siege warfare where they'd try and take over a city. But both of those things were kind of costly and kind of expensive. So the other thing they would do is if there was this city that they wanted to, uh, to dominate and to capture, they would go to a smaller city nearby and just completely destroy it. They would go in, they would burn the place to the ground, they would rip up vineyards, they would tear up orchards, they would salt the fields so it just became useless. And then the people, they would go in and they would torture and they would rape and they would mutilate the people and just destroy them. And then they would take various body parts and they would go and show it to this other city as if to say, look, if you hold out, this is exactly what's going to happen to you. It was a very effective method of of establishing a reputation and keeping things under control. And the Bible, when it speaks of Nineveh, uses it as a metaphor and almost a paradigm for evil. Because almost every reference to Nineveh in the Bible, it's either talking about the evil they commit or it's talking about the destruction that's coming because of the evil they commit. So God tells Jonah to go and speak a word against them. Now it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. It's a very common introduction. We see it in a bunch of the other prophets in the Bible. You know, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Joel. It's a very, very common kind of intro. So the reader would have been not surprised by this at all. But what is a little bit different is that although there were people that would speak out against other towns and other nations, very rarely did the prophet go and actually speak directly to those nations. The prophet would speak to the Israelites to encourage them or to warn them. But in this case, he's calling Jonah to go and speak to this cruel people, to go and walk into this camp of people that have this reputation and say, what you're doing is wrong, and it's not what the God of the Bible, who accidentally you don't believe in, wants you to do. Now for us, imagine being called to go and walk into an ISIS camp and tell them that what they're doing is wrong. There's that same connotation for Jonah. And this call already raises questions, right? Why is God even bothering to speak to the Ninevites? What's he going to say to them? What's he going to do? And what's going to happen to Jonah when he goes? Already we have questions, right? And it's difficult not to be drawn into this story because we have the hero, we have Jonah, we have this oppressive nation who are doing these terrible, terrible things. We have a word from God which kind of hints that they, you know, they're about to get their comeuppance, they're about to be uh, interacting with God in a way that they probably don't want, right? The dog is, underdog is about to get its day. It's hard not to be drawn in. In other ways, I think, when we read this, it also feels kind of remote and distant. It's the thing I was saying about this was a long time ago, and the call to Jonah is uh, something that we don't necessarily experience in our own lives. So I think it's helpful to think about, well, how God speaks and calls to us today. You know, maybe you're not currently a Christian. Maybe you're not someone who um, considers that they're in a relationship with God now. Maybe God is speaking about his desire to be in relationship with you. And that's what God's saying to the sailors in our text today. Maybe like Jonah, you are asked to go. And you're asked to go and be in a different place and to speak to a people and to share your faith. Actually, for many of us, we're probably called to stay. And the go for us is to talk to our friends and our family and our co-workers. Because when Jesus called us and said, go make disciples of all nations, that's still true whether you live in... Bangladesh or whether you live in Brighton, you're still to call to go and make disciples. 
Maybe God is calling you and speaking to you about the way you live your life. Maybe he's calling you to start something, to a, a daily time of spent praying and talking to him. Maybe he's calling you to be consistent in prayer for your friends and your neighbors. Or maybe he's asking you to develop a habit of generosity. Maybe he's telling you to stop something. Maybe there's a pattern of behavior in your life which isn't helpful and isn't really honoring to God. And God's saying, you know, I want you to stop that. The constant need maybe to buy new things or um, the need to kind of be accepted and to gossip. Maybe God's speaking into your life and saying, I want you to stop that. Or maybe it is a specific action. Maybe he's calling you to go and forgive that person who's wronged you. You know, all of these things, God is speaking to us and he's calling And Jonah, he comes and he calls and he speaks to him. But the one thing that we know is that this isn't coming out of the blue, right? So Jonah, as we said, was uh, speaking with God and God had called him in the situation in two kings that we talked about. And Jonah spoke to the king, it came true, etc. So this isn't the first time that God has spoken to Jonah. This isn't the first time he's come to him and said, I want you to do this. But Jonah has cultivated this history of obedience. And that's what I want to ask us today. Are we cultivating a history of obedience when God speaks and when God calls us? What's God saying, and how are we responding to that call? So God speaks to Jonah, and he asks him to go to Nineveh. And we ask ourselves, why why is God speaking to these Ninevites? What's he going to do to them? And what's going to happen to Jonah when he goes? And now the text tells us how Jonah responds. And the original reader, I think, would have likely listened and said, Jonah does what? Because we're told, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So we've said, okay, this calling from God uh, is is similar to one we've seen before. And although other prophets maybe have struggled with their calling, they've still been faithful and they've still done it. And so when God says, get up and go to Nineveh, in the next verse we read, so Jonah got up, we expect he's going to go to Nineveh. He's going to begin that month-long journey and head out that way. But what we're told is he does the exact opposite. God says to Jonah, arise, which is literally get up or go up. But we're told that Jonah goes down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. And later we read he goes even further down into the heart of the ship and lies down and goes to sleep. The other thing that you want to notice, the verse says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish and the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Now, it's pretty subtle. You might not have heard it. But Jonah went to Tarshish. Now, why is the author making such a big point of this? And if we've got a map, I think. All right, so this shows us, right? Gath Hefer is where Jonah lives. Nineveh, northeast, is where God's saying, I want you to go there. So he goes down to Joppa, and he goes to Tarshish. God says, I want you to go northeast, and he goes about southwest as far as he can possibly go. They think this was probably the most westerly point that was known to them at the time. So Jonah's not just disobeying. He's disobeying as radically as he possibly can. There's no way he can come before God and say, God, I was kind of going that way, but I got a bit distracted. I was chasing some Pokemon, and I got off track. (laughs) There's no way he can do this. So then the question is, why on earth is he doing this? It says um, he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's some humor here, right? Because Jonah, like any good Jewish person, knows his psalms, and he knows particularly Psalm 139, which says, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride on the wings of the morning, or if I dwell 
in that farthest ocean, you're still there and your hand will guide me. So Jonah is attempting to do the impossible. He's attempting to do what he knows he cannot do. And he says, it says he's fleeing from the presence of God, or literally it's before the face of God. Now, when the Bible uses that phrase, it uses it in three kind of ways. One is the literal presence of God. So Psalm 139 that I just talked about, you know, the literal place where God is, which is everywhere. The other way it uses it is to talk about God's attention or God's focus. So in the first verse, when um, God's talking about the Ninevites and he says that their sin has come up before him or their evil has come up before him, that's what it means. It's, It's literally come before the face of God. The third way it talks about it is when it talks about God's initiative in encountering people in a more personal way. And it's talking about an an initiation and a calling from God that warrants a response and requires us to respond. And it's not this general presence that Jonah's running from, but it's this encounter from God. It's this personal thing. So he leaves uh, his home. He leaves the place that he knows, the place where the temple is, which would remind him of God, and was like even the place where God spoke to him. And he runs to a different culture, a different place, where, you know, he might not be out of God's mind, but he's doing everything he can to put God out of his mind. And, you know, we run um, from God's calling in the same way. When God speaks to us, we do something really similar, right? We avoid the places that remind us of God. Maybe we don't come to church. Maybe we skip faith group. Um, Or maybe there's that place where you always pray and you you converse with God, and we, we kind of stay away from those places, Or we avoid the people that remind us. You know, we stop calling or we stop responding from calls from people because the last thing we want is some kind of well-meaning person to come along and say, how's your relationship with God going? Because when they do that, we're forced to admit that it's been a bit of a struggle recently, right? By which we mean we've not looked at the Bible in months, but hey, we feel guilty about it, so at least that's something. The other thing we do is maybe we schedule everything and everything and just crowd prayer out. We say we're too busy to find time. Or maybe it's more subtle than that, right? Maybe we sit down and we are still reading our Bible and we're still praying, but the times are kind of dry. And when we really think about it, what we're doing is we're saying to God, God, I want you to come and I want you to speak to me, but God, don't speak to me about that. Don't speak to me about that thing that you've called me or you've spoken to me about. But Lord, I really want you to speak to me, just not about that. I will ask my kids to do things frequently. And it's rare that they'll ever outright say no. They will try and talk their way out of it sometimes. Sometimes they will just take themselves off to a different part of the house or wherever we are where they can't see me and I can't see them. And they kind of assume that I'll forget over time and they won't have to do it. The other thing they'll do is they'll kind of go away and they'll do something that's similar to what I asked them to do because they're happy doing that, but it isn't quite what I asked them to do. But again, they think they can appease me by doing this and maybe I won't chase them on this other thing, right? They do that. And we're just like them. That's exactly what we do with God. We run, we hide, we obfuscate, we argue. These are the things that we do. So God's called Jonah, but Jonah has gone in completely the opposite direction. We're not told why he's running. We can guess, but we're not told. In fact, we're not actually told until Jonah 4, right at the end of the book of Jonah. So if you're curious, you better come back. But against all expectations, this prophet of God, this trusted man of God has run. And he's run away. 
So now we've got more questions, right? What on earth is going to happen to Jonah? Because the Ninevites at the very beginning, they were in trouble because they disobeyed God. And now Jonah, this trusted man of God, this, this person who everybody looks to, is disobeying as well. Something's got to go on, right? You've got Jonah and the Ninevites in disobedience. It, it feels like there's got to be some smiting to be done. So we will see. So then we are told, how does God respond? And if there's any shock and surprise in this chapter, this is it, right? Because you read this and you say, God does what? What does God do? And we're told, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God, and perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So we hear that this this storm comes, but it's not just any storm. We're told that this storm has come from God. And the narrator uses this word hurled, and it makes it sound like God is angry. And it makes it sound like we were right. He's angry. He's going to be uh, bringing vengeance and retribution when people disobey. And it's not just any old storm. We're not just talking about a few drops of rain and a gust of wind. But when they're out at sea and these mariners, these professional sailors, are scared. And they're scared to the point where they're throwing cargo overboard. Now, this is likely a merchant ship of some kind. So their cargo was their livelihood. It was their income. It was their money. What would it take for you? Where would you need to be so that you thought it was a good idea to run to the bank to take out all of your money and to ditch it in the Boston Harbor? Right? But this is what they're doing. They're throwing it into the sea. This is a serious thing. Now, I don't know how many of us have actually been on a ship in a storm. Probably not that many. But we've seen all the big movies, right? We've seen Perfect Storm. We know exactly what it's like being on a ship. They're being tossed around. There's big waves. It's deafening. The sailors are having to to shout at one another to even be heard. And it's told that the ship just sounds as though it's breaking apart. It's just breaking up. There's this creaking and this groaning, and they're fearing for their life. And then in the middle of all this tumult, we go down into the ship, and we see that Jonah's fast asleep. How that's possible... I do not know. But it does tell you one thing. Jonah has gone down about as far as he can go, and he would rather be asleep in a situation where he might lose his life than he would listen to God and do something about it. Now we get some humor. If you don't laugh, that's okay. As I say, it's probably Jewish humor. But the ship's captain comes and wakes him up. And he says to him, How on earth are you sleeping? Right? Arise! Cry out to God! And the irony here, the arise and the cry out to God were the very words that God used to speak to Jonah at the beginning. And Jonah shut down and he's not listening. But God says, fine, I'm going to use this non-believing captain, the one we're already told worships other gods, and I'm going to speak to him through you and I'm going to remind you, arise and cry out. This is what I told you to do and now I'm reminding you through this person who doesn't even believe. And then the captain says something interesting. He says, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. There's three things here that really stand out. One is, he is recognizing that their fate is in the hands of God. And that God is in control, and God can do as he wishes. He's also hinting a little bit at God's heart for the crew, and potentially for the Ninevites. He's saying maybe his heart is that we don't perish. And the last thing he's doing is he's contrasting Jonah's heart 
with God's heart. Because Jonah's there, he doesn't care about his own life, and he certainly doesn't seem to care about the crew's life, right? He's asleep. And the sailing captain says to him, you might not care, you might be asleep, but maybe your God does care. Maybe he cares. So the sailors then ask, well, we think this is from God, so we need to find out who brought this evil upon us. And again, it it just comes out in the text, this word evil that they use is the same word that they use at the beginning to talk about the evil of the Ninevites. And the narrator's contrasting Jonah's disobedience with the disobedience of the Ninevites. So they cast lots, and lots were like little small mark stones, which they would cast to get revelation from, from the divine. And the God who's able to control the storm and bring the storm is able to control the lots. And Jonah is revealed as the person. So they say to Jonah, well, you brought this on us. What do we do? How do we get out of this? Tell us what to do. And I think Jonah then comes and says to him, well, you know what you've got to do? You've got to throw me in the water. Now, what do you think you'd have felt if you were one of the sailors at this point, right? So you're on board this ship. You're in a big storm. You're afraid for your life. And this guy comes to you and says, I want you to throw me in, which, as far as you're concerned, probably means pretty near certain death for this guy. You know, on the one hand, you're probably sat there thinking, you know, he's not a bad guy. As roommates go, he's been asleep most of the time. He's pretty quiet. It's okay. I don't want to kill him. I don't want to be responsible for his death. And on the flip side, you're also thinking, you know, he he says about this God in heaven who he worships, and this God is so powerful that he can send a storm, and he sent this storm, and he's interacting with this guy. So this guy must be pretty important to him, right? Now, how's this God going to feel if I take this guy, and he dies as a result of what I do? And so when Jonah says that, they, they ignore him, basically, and they say, okay, no, we're going to row for land. We're going to row for land. Now, whether they do that out of compassion or out of fear of God, whichever it is, they're still revealing a more godly heart in them than Jonah has. Because right now, Jonah doesn't fear God. He's running. He doesn't want to listen, and he's not showing any compassion for anyone else, right? So they row for land, and the storm, we're told, gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And it looks like that God is finally going to do it. God is finally going to punish Jonah for his disobedience. But then we find out that the storm isn't punishment, but it's pursuit. He's not bringing retribution to Jonah. He's bringing rescue. And the sailors pray, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord have done as it pleased you. In other words, don't blame us that this guy can't do what he's told. And don't blame us because he's told us to throw him in the sea. That's just, we're just following what he said. But again, they say, Lord, it's up to you. You're in control. And they're recognizing that, again, everything is in God's control and in his will. And you see this changing and growing fear in the sailors, right? So at the beginning, they were just afraid of the storm and what might happen. And then Jonah tells them about God and his, his running, and they become afraid of, again, what's happening through Jonah. And then Jonah tells them that you know, he worships the Lord of the sea, and then they're just fearful of God himself. They recognize the character and the nature of God, and they have a fear and a respect of God. And we're told, ultimately, that that leads them to worship. You know, and Jonah, this, this reluctant witness who has barely said anything and certainly not conveyed much of God's love, becomes the instrument by which these people hear about God and their lives are changed. Again, irony, right? This man who's running from being a missionary, who's running from telling people about God, is the instrument of bringing change to people. 
So we were told God hurled a storm at the, at the sailors, and they started back by hurling back cargo. But God didn't really want the cargo. And so we're told that they listen to Jonah, and they hurl back Jonah. And the sea grows calm, because God wants Jonah, and God is pursuing Jonah. We find out that not the storm or the fish that's coming are punishment from God, but they're just signs of God's pursuit of Jonah. At the end of the chapter, you know, we are still left with a bunch of unanswered questions. We don't know what's going to happen to the Ninevites. We don't know if Jonah's going to go speak to them. We don't know what's going to happen to Jonah. We're not really told. The only thing that we've really resolved is what's happened to the sailors, that they're on land and they're worshipping. That's the only thing we've actually found out. We've also been faced with this slightly uncomfortable reality that although Jonah is this great trusted man of God, these non-believing people actually demonstrated a more godly character than Jonah did. We've also got to ask, as we should throughout the whole book, is what have we learned about God in this chapter? What has it told us about the God who's the same yesterday and today and tomorrow and is the God that we worship, right? And we have found that he's the one who loves, who shows mercy, and the one who pursues us despite our own rebellion and despite our own disobedience. At the beginning of this message, I talked a little bit about how potentially Jonah could be difficult to relate to. It's kind of difficult for us in our time, in our era, to really uh, gel with Jonah in many ways. And yet, in other ways, for those of us particularly that have grown up in a Christian home or have been around church for a long time, we should be able to empathize with Jonah pretty easily. Because, you know, we might not label ourselves this way, but Jonah was a religious man. And in many ways, you know, we are religious people. And it's clear that this tells us that religious people, even though they're religious, they don't necessarily demonstrate the heart and the character of the God that we say we worship. We think of rebellion, and when we think of the term about rebellion and disobedience to God, we we kind of typically think that's an external problem, that's external to the church. But again, this text is making it clear that rebellion is just as much a problem inside the church as it is outside the church. We don't always do a great job of listening to God and hearing and responding and being obedient and demonstrating his heart and his character and his love for others. Right? Think about that friend you have who maybe is a non-believer, and they're the first person you think of when you think of love because they're so generous and they're so kind and they're so giving to others. You know, if something happens to someone, they're the first person to put their hand in their pocket and help them or to set up a GoFundMe page or something similar like that, right? And we feel convicted. What about the person who's always so generous with those around them in terms of their time and the things that they're willing to do for them, right? What about that atheist friend that you might have who, you know, he doesn't believe in God or she doesn't believe in God. They, they think it's the most ridiculous thing. And they are not scared to go and tell people and share their faith statement that they don't believe there's a God with everyone and anyone, They don't care as much about what people think of them as they do of sharing that this is just crazy, right? How do we feel when we see people like that? We would like to think that as Christians, you know, in these areas of love and of caring and of sharing our faith, we lead the charge. But that's not always the case. Very often we find ourselves in the pit of a ship heading to Tarshish, right? But the good news is that for someone who doesn't currently believe in Jesus and us as we face the fact that we rebel... The good news is exactly the same. That rebellion is not a new thing to God. We read the Bible and you see that he's been dealing with rebellion in people's lives throughout the whole of the Bible story and is still dealing with rebellion now, right? We read about a God who chases us 
and chases us and pursues us until we come to the end of our running and we turn around and we see that God has been running with us all along. And he said, I am right here. We have found a a God, a God who has got the grace to pursue. Later in the Bible, we find out that God ultimately pursued us through Jesus. And we find that God came down from heaven in the person of Jesus so that he could come and he could meet us in our rebellion, in our choice to be disobedient to God. He came and he chased us through the person of Jesus who could die after living a perfect sinless life so that he could take our sins and the punishment for our disobedience away from us, right? And reluctant as he was, Jonah was assigned to these sailors of God and God's love for them. And what Jonah did imperfectly, Jesus did perfectly in that he could come and he could take away their and our sin. God is longing for a people who will love him and he can love in return. He's looking to restore the relationship with him that we were created to have. And although we rebel and we walk away from God, God doesn't walk away. He doesn't reach out with immediate punishment or retribution or even justice, right? Like we probably deserve. But he's gracious. He holds back. He pursues. He guides our steps. And then we can finally come to a point where we open our eyes and realize that God is just offering grace after grace after grace. We run and we run and we find that we run into his grace. If the band want to come on back up. There's a couple of things that I'd like to challenge you with this morning. I don't know where you're at with your life. I don't know whether you, as I say, are a non-believer and you, you don't currently have a relationship with Jesus. I don't know if you would consider yourself a believer, but life has been a struggle. I don't know if you're a great believer and you've just had one or two things that maybe God's calling you to and you're struggling with. You know, wherever you're at, the challenge is God is likely speaking. God is likely calling. What's he saying? And the next thing I want to ask you is, how are you responding to that call? There's the well-known phrase, you can run but you can't hide, right? It's true. Jonah says that. He can run but he can't hide. But this morning, I want to encourage you, don't do either. Because neither are very effective and they're not particularly worthwhile, right? Instead, think how are you going to respond to the thing that God is calling you to do? And whatever you, wherever you're coming from, whether you're coming from someone who has a history of obedience or maybe you're coming as a place as someone who's really struggled throughout all of the things God's saying to you, recognize that God is a God of grace who has a heart to love and pursue you. And that's what he's doing. He's loving and he's pursuing you. If you are sensing any kind of call of God this morning, and I, I kind of outline what those calls could look like, you're sensing any of that call of God this morning, I just encourage you to pray with someone, right? Um, if there's faith group leaders here and they could come forward, that would be great. But if you feel the need and you want to pray with someone, come, come and pray. Let them stand alongside you. Let them pray with you. Let them agree with you and support you in whatever it is God is calling you to do. If you don't feel comfortable coming forward, that's okay. It's not where we pray that counts. It's the fact that you pray and the fact that you respond. So if you want to grab someone near you, if you want to Um, Just find a friend or whatever it might be. I encourage you, if God's calling, pray about it. Don't let it go. Grab hold of that. If everyone wants to stand.
I'm just going to pray, and then after that, if you, if you want prayer, please do come forward or grab someone by you. Father God, I want to thank you that you are the God of grace. You are the God with grace to pursue. Father, that you love us and you cherish us and you desire to be with us and us to be with you so much that you aren't willing just to sit back and let nature take its course, Lord. You're not waiting for us to come to our senses, but Father, you are coming and you are pursuing us. And Lord, I want to pray that through your Holy Spirit, you might enable us to see again and to hear and to respond to that call. Father God, we're not saying life is easy, but Father, we're saying that we know the truth and we want to pursue that. We want to pursue you. And we look to you for the strength to do that. Father, I want to pray that we would recognize your love for us, your mercy for us, and your desire to pursue us, and that we might respond to that desire and that grace and that love.